Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Samantha Thomas, and today I'm talking with English professor and cage fighter Jonathan Gottschall about the purpose of fighting and why so many of us are fascinated by it. So welcome to the show, Professor Gottschall. Your new book is called The Professor in the Cage, and it's about why men fight and why the rest of us like to watch. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about the style of fighting that your book is about? Yeah, yeah definitely. So I think this is actually quite, quite interesting because there's been more evolution in the martial arts in the last like 20 years than there has been probably in the last 2,000 years. And it all started about 20 years ago when um, the, U the UFC uh, first was founded. UFC means Ultimate, Ultimate Fighting Championship. And it started as a way of settling these old barroom arguments between martial artists about who had the best style. Everyone thought they did. The boxers thought they were the best. The wrestlers did. The karate guys, the judo guys, and so on and so forth. And the UFC was about putting up or shutting up. It was about taking talented representatives from each of these martial styles, literally locking them up in a cage, for no-holds-barred fights. Anything went. Going to see who was best. And the, the results shocked just about everyone because the, the styles that people had sort of naturally and always assumed were the best, stuff like the Asian striking style, stuff like karate, kung fu, taekwondo, this kind of thing, those guys didn't just lose. On the whole, they got massacred. Mm -hmm. They got humiliated. And so... What happened was there was a sort of shock delivered to the whole martial arts community, and they basically decided to, to uh, design fighting anew, um, taking the best elements from each di discipline. So mixed martial arts uh, evolved as basically a hybrid between forms of kickboxing, forms of American-style wrestling, and a ground-fighting system known as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu which is about getting your opponent to submit through chokes or joint locks. The style of fighting that you um, do is called mixed MMA or mixed martial arts. Um, right. Which is, by the way, just a euphemism for cage fighting. So about, about, about I don't know what, when it was, like maybe 12, 13 years ago, you know, the UFC was under a lot of political pressure. Um, and so part of their, their rebranding uh, effort was to stop calling themselves cage fighting and start calling themselves by the much foggier and more euphemistic name, mixed martial arts. Okay. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you went from being an English professor to being a cage fighter. Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird transition, isn't it? Um, well, you know, I was uh, pushing up on 40 years old. I was working as an adjunct in an English department, and I never managed to find my way into the tenure track, and I was reaching that point where I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm never going to. And so I sort of needed to find something new in my life. I was sort of, I guess, having a kind of midlife crisis. And one day, I was at my office hours, and I happened to look out the front window, and this new business had moved in across the street, and it was one of these cage fighting gyms. And I was ambushed by this really unexpected emotion, and the emotion was envy. 
You know, I just felt this sense of envy for those guys. I could see them in the cage. I could see them dancing, hitting, tackling, rolling. And I had this sort of funny thought, and it was just a joke at my own expense. And it was, it was, hey, wouldn't it be funny if I went across the street and joined them? You know, I'm almost 40. I have this incredibly civilized job. I've <laughs> literally never been in a fight before. I'm not in very good shape. And my next thought was more sober. It was like, well, you know, maybe there's a book in that, a sort of nonfiction version of Fight Club, where I'd go across the street, I'd try to learn how to fight, but I'd also be pursuing these big, ancient, important questions about the role that violence plays in human life. So could could you tell us a little bit about the history of those questions and kind of the history of, of ritualized violence? Uh, sure, sure. Um, where to start? Where to start? The book, you know, is about something I call the monkey dance. And just to give you a bit of background on this, if you've ever seen a nature video, you can, you'll see like, you know, a couple of elephant seals clashing in the surf or a couple of mountain goats, you know, bashing skulls on a hillside. Biologists call those forms of contest, they call them ritual combat. Hmm. The ways different animals have evolved, a broad variety of different animals have evolved for figuring out who's bigger, tougher, stronger, fitter, without fighting it out to death, to the death. Now, sometimes animals do die, but because of the rituals, the level of lethality is much, much lower. Now, humans are animals too. You know, we seem to like to forget that. We're complex animals, we're cultured animals, but we're animals still. And the monkey dance is my name for human versions of ritual combat. Everything from uh, deadly duels to, to verbal duels to the play fights of boys to sports. And the key thing about these contests is that they'll often seem silly and ridiculous. Sometimes they'll escalate to, to, to a tragic level. <laughs> but on the whole, they're good things. They usually keep our contests civilized by channeling aggression down relatively safe pathways. I think you, you mentioned that they also kind of help establish dominance hierarchies kind of without, this, uh, without kind of unnecessary violence. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at those, uh, those two elephant seals clashing in the surf, that's what they're deciding. They're deciding who is the bigger, stronger, tougher guy, but they're also working out a dominance hierarchy. They're working out control of a beach. And in the end, they're working out control of a harem of 50 females. Hmm. Uh, so that's why, you know, this is such an important contest for these guys. You know, 96 out of 100 male elephant seals never reproduce at all. Only 4 out of 100 do. And with uh, human males, again, things are more complicated. There's culture, there's all that stuff. Um, but, you know, yes, what, what, what men are doing in part, is working out these hierarchies, thrashing out uh, differences, figuring out uh, who would probably win a fight if it came down to it without actually having to have the fight. Can you kind of describe the steps for, you know, two guys who are trying to establish dominance? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm using the, I mean, I'm using the term monkey dance very broadly to refer to a whole bunch of male contests, but there is, there is a uh, self-defense expert named Rory Miller, and I'm borrowing the term monkey dance from him and adapting it. And Rory Miller was talking about 
the monkey dance in prisons. Uh, and he was talking about the choreography of a standard fist fight. And his observations were very much supported by sociologists who'd studied similar patterns around the world. And so the choreography of a standard fist fight runs like this. There is a dispute between two guys, you know, something silly usually. Somebody feels insulted. Somebody feels disrespected. Somebody looked at somebody this, the wrong way. It's usually very silly stuff. There'll be a, there'll be a challenge. Um, there'll be bluster back and forth. The key thing is at any point, either guy can back down, walk away, and this will, this will all fizzle out. And, in fact, that's usually what happens. But if neither guy will back down and apologize, they'll eventually close the distance, they'll push, they'll pull, they'll, they'll, they'll punch, they'll tackle. And my point about this is that the choreography of this dance, the back-and-forth moves of it, seems to be about as hardwired into us as patterns of conflict are in those two mountain goats that are squaring off on that hillside. Mm -hmm. It goes from, you know, a slight, some some form of disrespect to a verbal challenge to increasingly uh, dangerous body language, closing the distance. It's a step-by-step escalation. So they're not going to DEFCON 5 right away. They're not going nuclear right away. Neither one wants to go nuclear. What they want to do is to escalate and escalate and bluff the other guy down. This is just how it happens in animals. You know, the, the, the two elephant seals, uh, they have that fight, but for every fight that they have, there's been hundreds probably of nonviolent, aggressive interactions where one bull or the other managed to bluff the other bull down. So the, the other bull will realize that it's outmatched. and Exactly. Okay. I don't want to mess with that, guys. This is a, <laughs> a doomed cause. It, it only comes to a real fight uh, in general when the bulls are evenly matched. And neither mm-hmm. one, uh, each, each one thinks that, hey, I think I'm the better bull in this fight. And really the same is true of people. You know, for the most part, one guy or the other realizes that this is a very bad idea for him in particular and tries to find a, sa- a face-saving way out of the confrontation. Okay, I do want to talk about other topics, but before we move on from this, I wonder, um, does it need to come to one of those challenges to know who's dominant in a group of men, or do you think that subconsciously people kind of know where they rank in the dominance hierarchy, um, or do they need to to um, actually be challenged to figure it out? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I think in general probably people have a very good sense for where they stand in the hierarchy. I read a book by a social, social psychologist about exactly that, and he challenged you to think about everyone in your life and think about where you, where you stood in the dominance hierarchy in relation to that person. And most people are very good at understanding exactly where they are in their relationships, who's dominant in a friendship, who's subdominant, who's dominant at work and, and who's not. Um, and people have a lot of subjective in, uh, agreement in their, uh, their, their how they rank each other. That's interesting. Um, okay, so after participating in this cage fighting culture, do you have a better sense of... Um, the biology kind of of why fighting is so attractive to, to men especially? Yeah, you know, I think the duel is dead. So, you know, 
part of the way I structured the book was thinking about all these contests in terms of the duel. And the duel is this, you know, incredibly elaborate uh, showdown, you know, where, again, a guy will feel disrespected, dishonored, insulted. He'll demand satisfaction. He'll demand an apology. If the guy won't apologize, they meet with pistols or swords at dawn. It seems crazy to us that people would ever do this. Um, so that is dead. The duel is dead in the sense of that stuffy, elaborate ritual. But the whole psychology of male honor, that is still with us. That is still alive and kicking. And when men fight today, when they even kill each other today, it usually comes back to issues of respect and honor. Someone feels disrespected, dishonored, insulted, slighted. Uh, things escalate, and before you know it, someone is lying on the sidewalk. So why do men fight? In general, it tends to be over matters of honor or respect. Could you define honor for us in this context? What, um, what exactly does that mean? Honor has always been a sort of fuzzy concept. People had trouble defining it even back when the word was thrown around all the time. But you won't be too far wrong if you just think of it in terms of respect. A man of honor is a man who demands respect. Hmm. Okay. Um, you have an interesting quote in your book. You quote the American poet John Berryman, and he says, the trouble with this country is that a man can live his entire life without knowing if he is a coward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a fascinating idea. Do you believe it? Yeah, I think I believe that. Um, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, to be honest, because on a personal level, um, I was kind of curious about whether I was a coward or not, <laughs> or whether I could do a brave thing. I'd always admired physical forms of bravery. Now, I've always been sort of intellectually brave. I've been willing to take risks in my career. I've been willing to take risks in my writing. But when it came to the physical forms of bravery, I didn't think I'd ever done anything like that. I wanted to know if I had it in me. And I think, you know, if you watch cage fighting on TV uh, or boxing on TV, you'll probably leap to the same conclusions about those guys that I did going into the project. I figured boy, those guys are savages. Boy, they're violent. Uh, They must be real bullies or sadists. They must really take pleasure in hurting people. Um, But then when I got into the culture, I found that wasn't true at all. These are ordinary young men, um, and I think what they're doing is trying to find out if they have courage, if they have bravery. Mm -hmm. The world has gotten softer and softer, safer, safer and safer, and there's less and less outlet for what might be called the sort of masculine virtues. And so these are guys who are going into the cage to figure out whether or not they have any courage in them, whether or not they um, have any bravery in them. And uh, women do it too, uh, to a lesser extent. But I'm not sure that the psychology for female fighters is the same as what drives the male fighters. And you think it's more of a self-defense thing? I don't know for sure. I mean, to be honest, the whole boom in women's martial arts, mixed martial arts, occurred sort of late in the process of writing my book. Hmm. So now this woman, Ronda Rousey, has come along, and she's sort of electrified uh, the whole uh, sports world because she's such a charismatic person and such a, a dominant fighter. Um, but, yeah, I, I think in my personal experience, 
men have been drawn into the martial arts gym largely as dual training. These are young guys. They are at the age where physical violence and physical intimidation between men is most common. And they're training so that if they're out in the world and someone tries to insult them or humiliate them or push them around, they'll be able to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Women, in general, aren't worried about getting in those sorts of duels. They're worried about uh, fitness, for instance, maybe just some sort of nebulous challenge, and also about real assault defense, especially sexual assault defense. Right. Do you have a sense of why men and women differ so much in respect to violence? Yeah. So one thing I, I think when people hear about my book, they start they they groan a little bit like, oh no, another book about gender, and this guy's going to repeat all the dumb stereotypes. And but I'm but I'm not saying everything about uh, gender is biologically determined. No one believes that. I certainly don't. You know, you, all you have to do is look at the massive changes in women's roles and lives over the last hundred years to know that biology is in destiny. But men and women uh, differ vastly in their likelihood of committing uh, forms of physical aggression, Mm -hmm. forms of physical violence. It's possibly the largest sex difference and the least controversial sex difference in terms of its biological foundations. Um, So, you're asking, where does this come from? Yeah, what, what, is, the, what is your understanding of it? Okay, yeah, so, you know, you, I mean, you move around in the world, you see the differences between men and women, you, and you wonder where they come from. You see physical differences, and you see behavioral differences. And there is a co- cultural component to this for sure, but there's a biology to it for sure as well. Mm-hmm. And the biology also actually comes down to something very solid, and very simple. You know, it's basic, it's basic sexual selection. So as a genetic fact, this is a fact, it is not a theory. The average man throughout species history has always had a harder time reproducing than the average woman. Um, genetic studies show that while most women successfully reproduced, most men did not. Now, how could that be? It's because some guys were always hogging up more than their fair share of the women. Now, again, as a genetic fact, not a theory, what this means is that the evolutionary contest for reproduction was always substantially fiercer for males than it was for females. And men have been shaped by the ferocity of that contest. It's why men are bigger than women, It's why men are stronger than women. It's why men are faster than women. It's why men have higher cardiovascular capacities, even in trained athletes. And it also explains some behavioral differences. It's why men are more aggressive than women. It's why all around the world, without exception, men are more prone to taking truly idiotic risks. And it's why, again, without exception, the whole history of anthropology and the whole uh, history of the world has never been a society identified where women did more of the violence and men did less of the violence. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of tell us about if the perception of kind of pain or, or fear is, is different when in the context of fighting than it is, say, pain or fear that comes from other reasons? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really one of the cool things that I learned 
first pain, uh, it goes away in a fight. I thought that was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'd ask these guys who were fighters, I'm like, you know, what's it like to get punched in the face? I mean, how, I mean during a fight, I mean, sometimes they land these leg kicks over and over and over again. I know they're terribly painful. And they'd be like, no, it doesn't really hurt. You only feel it afterwards. Mm-hmm. So part of the biology appears to be that the pain response goes off a little bit because it's not as useful during a fight. You need to keep fighting uh, no matter what. Fear is another thing that was really interesting to me. And in fact, some people have asked me, like, okay, so if you want a rite of passage, if you want to do a brave, courageous thing, if you want this really hard test, why not go run an ultra marathon or just an, a marathon or, or some other, you know, crazy challenge? Um, and the reason is fear. Uh, nothing is as scary as fighting. Uh, they take you and they strip you down half naked and they lock you up inside a cage with some savage, you know, trained killer. And the only way to get out of that cage is to fight your way through. And so there's a primal fear that all fighters are wrestling with. Uh, even the best guys in the world, the toughest guys in the world, will cop to it. They'll admit that this is a nerve-wracking, anxiety-producing, fearful uh, process. And so uh, when guys go into that cage, when young guys, amateurs especially, go into that cage, well, that's exactly what they're seeking. They're seeking out the fear so they can see if they can conquer it. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, okay, we've talked a lot about the first question that you um, ask in your book, which is why men like to fight. Uh, why do we like to watch? I think in general, I'll say one thing first, just to clarify. It's not that men like to fight. In general, men don't like to fight. Men try as hard as they can not to be in fights. The whole monkey dance is about bluffing the other guy down. What you want is to uh, assert yourself um, and to bluff the guy into giving up what you want, whether it's some material resource or whether it's social status, without having to have the fight. Mm. The fight is scary. The fight is dangerous. Even if I dominate my opponent, my hands are in danger, and I can really hurt myself uh, throwing punches. Uh, so, so it's not that we like to fight. It's that we have a tendency to fight uh, rather than taking you know, a great deal of pleasure in it. Why do we like to watch? Why do we like so to watch? To <laughs> yes. Yeah, this was a crucially interesting question to me because, well, I've been watching fights on TV, you know, for 15, 20 years, always in the spirit of guilty fascination. I'd be watching, I'd be thinking to myself, what's going on here? I'm a decent, civilized, peace-loving person, <laughs> and yet here I am watching these two guys beat each other bloody. You know, what's wrong with me? And what's wrong with all of us, you know, because, you know, even those of us who wouldn't be caught dead cage, you know, at a cage fight or a boxing match, we still consume a, a larger amount of violent spectacle in our TV and our films or video games. I think violence is, even more than sex, the great staple of our entertainment economies. So does it just come down to bloodlust and barbarism? I actually don't think so. Um, because I don't want to watch ISIS videos. I don't want to watch an ISIS torture murder video. And I don't think most people do. So if we just wanted blood and carnage, we'd just fire up these, these ISIS videos. But, you know, I think when we go to, uh, we go to combat sport, for instance, a big boxing match, like the Pacquiao-Mayweather match mm-hmm. that just happened, I think we go to it largely because 
It's just an incredibly intense and powerful drama. You usually have a good guy and a bad guy. Uh, they are going to clash in this incredibly decisive climax. It's reality TV. All the, real, all the pain is real. All the emotion is real. And it's just this form of drama, a form of storytelling even, that is incredibly intense and hard for other forms of drama to match. So you don't think that we like to watch because, because we want to know the hierarchy. That, that would be my intuition. We want to watch because yeah. we, we want to know who's on top, right? No, I think that's right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's a difference between uh, a, a professional sports organization like the UFC and the sorts of fights that we would have attended to, paid attention to, gathered around in our communities throughout evolutionary time. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's, I have no stake really in whether Manny Pacquiao or Mayweather is dominant. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect my life. But if you go back to uh, the villages and tribes in which humans evolved, it would really matter. You'd really want to know who was strong and who was weak. You'd want to know because you'd want to know who would make a good ally, who would make a dangerous foe maybe even who would make uh, a, a, the more suitable mate. A lot of good information is conveyed, I'm saying. In fistfights, yes, but also other forms of contest, other forms of sport. Again, that was Dr. Jonathan Gottschall, and his book is called The Professor in the Cage. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grax crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, look out for the first signs of the monkey dance, and as always, keep on grokking.